Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatric urologist provides an overview of the most common testicular problems that may affect boys and men. We see a good deal of undescended testicles. We see a lot of penile abnormalities. When parents are concerned, um, it's always important to bring them to a children's hospital. A psychiatric nurse practitioner talks about addiction and how it applies to electronic devices such as smartphones. The devices are very easy to get addicted to because we can manipulate them in whatever way that we want. And a neurosciences researcher talks about frontotemporal dementia and how it differs from Alzheimer's disease. One of the more prominent features that really sets it apart from Alzheimer's disease is that it strikes younger. The majority of the individuals are between the ages of 45 and 65. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore whether a person can be addicted to their smartphone with a psychiatric nurse practitioner who specializes in addiction. Then we'll hear about frontotemporal dementia and its similarities and differences with Alzheimer's disease. But first, a pediatric urologist talks about testicular problems such as torsion, trauma, cancer, and more. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The male gonads, or testicles, are the primary male reproductive organs. They produce sperm and they secrete hormones, primarily testosterone. There can be problems which call for the help from a specialist like Dr. Anthony Tracy, who's in the HealthLink on Air studio with me today. Dr. Tracy is an assistant professor of urology at Upstate, and he specializes in pediatric urology. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Tracy. Thank you so much for having me today. So I want to ask you about a condition that I guess it affects newborn baby boys, undescended testes. So is that something when a baby is born, um, is that a problem that becomes apparent? Yeah, so I mean, it's something that's very common when uh, newborn babies are are born. Certainly, um, premature babies um, frequently have undescended testicles. Um, The testicles normally descend um, in utero. Uh, when they do not, um, typically we give them a good three months after birth to kind of slowly work their way down. Um, if they don't come down by that time, they really should be seen by a pediatric urologist specialist who specializes in undescended testicle surgery. Um, typically, you don't do any kind of um, surgery until the baby's at least six months old post-gestational age. So the testes develop uh, in a baby in the torso area, and then they have to fall into place? Great question. So, so they, they start out and develop in the retroperitoneum, and they slowly work their way down through the retroperitoneum, through the groin, and then into the scrotum. And there's all different kinds of hormone pathways that um, influence that descent. So the retroperitoneum, and that's like the pelvis area? The, the retroperitoneum is behind the um, intestines and, and that kind of stuff where the kidneys oh, okay. and the uh, great vessels lie. Okay. Now, what causes the testes to descend? Or, like, do they get a signal from the brain that it's time to descend? Or, or what would impede them from descending? So there, there are some anatomical issues that could impede testicles. Uh, for example, if the child has an abnormally large bladder or something like that, but that's exceptionally rare. Typically, um, insulin um, growth hormone factor 3 uh, is the most common 
um, hormone that's attributed to making the testicles descend into the groin. Once they get into the groin area, which is like the inguinal canal, um, once we get to that area, um, androgens, most um, chiefly testosterone, causes descent into the actual scrotum itself. All right. Now, what would happen uh, if someone never got this treated? If a, if a baby, if this went un, uncared for? That's a good question. So, you know, we know that an intra-abdominal undescent testicle um, has a much higher chance of invasive cancer than a testicle that's either in the scrotum or in the groin. Um, so it's very important to bring testicles either down to the scrotum, if that's possible, or if the testicle is not viable for a number of different reasons, it's important to take it out, again, for elimination of cancer risk. Okay, interesting. Well, let's uh, switch the conversation and talk uh, about testicular torsion. So testicular torsion is a really important thing to talk about because it affects um, boys around the peripubital age where the testicle twists on his blood supply due to a congenital malformation in the testicle and scrotum connection. And when that happens, there's an acute um, testicle pain and sometimes abdominal pain and nausea and vomiting. And when that occurs, you have, you know, about six hours to save the testicle. Um, ideally, you want to get to the, the operating room much sooner than that. So the twisting, is that just caused by the way a, a, a boy moves? It's not. We think that it's... Um, caused by a deformity of development where it's called a bell flapper, a bell clapper phenomenon, where the testicle is supposed to attach to the scrotum to prevent it from twisting. And we feel that when that does not occur, the testicle is able to twist on its blood supply easier and just randomly it'll twist either, you know, when a boy wakes up in the morning for no reason or during vigorous activity. And that's a, a surgical emergency. So you mentioned pain. Is that the primary symptom? So you're going to have a sudden sharp pain with a um, referred pain to the abdomen and then a lot of times nausea and vomiting Okay. before any kind of swelling or redness occurs. And so it's an emergency you need to get to the hospital emergency room for. What do you do for that? How is it treated once it, once the person arrives? Well, I say the the most important thing, you know, for the families out there is that, you know, when you have something that's that urgent, you don't want to take your child to an urgent care or something like that. You want to go straight really to a pediatric ER straight to Galisano Hospital would be where I would take my son. Okay. All right. Um, what is done typically based on the presentation is that if the presentation is, you know, classic for torsion, the child can go straight to the operating room. Um, most times they get a, an ultrasound of the scrotum, which will show a diminished blood flow. Um, if either of those things occurs, during surgery we usually tack down both sides so the other side doesn't twist because, you know, the other side is also at risk for torsion as well. So the surgery is basically to untwist what it what is twisted? Exactly. So the, okay. the surgery, you know, conceptually is quite simple. We open up the scrotum, we untwist the vessels, make sure that that testicle is viable and that blood supply is returning to it. And if that is the case, then we um, suture the testicle into the scrotum into place with three-point fixation on both sides. And you mentioned like a six-hour window um, that this is urgent that needs to be taken care of. If someone comes in... Beyond that window, mm-hmm. what are the risks? I mean, could, could a man lose his testicle? Absolutely. From this? Yeah, really? and so that's the most important thing. Now, certainly, um, after that six-hour window, testicles still could be viable, but we know from you know a lot of good um, research that you know that six-hour window is really the optimal time to fix it. Can you tell what man is prone to developing this ahead of time? So there, there is a, a good amount of familial 
um, relationship where if it, if torsion runs in the family, that's that's one thing that could be a risk factor. Um, we know that on ultrasound, if a testicle has a certain kind of lie or horizontal lie, that is sometimes indicative that they don't have that that connection and they have that bell clapper deformity. Um, but there's no screening tests for that. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Anthony Tracy. He's an assistant professor of urology, and he specializes in pediatric urology. Can we talk about testicular cancer? I've read that this uh, is most common. It's the most common cancer in young men, like mm-hmm. 15 to 34. Is, is that your experience? Absolutely. And it's a, it's a very treatable cancer. Um, I think the most important thing is um, serial self-examinations. Um, testicular cancer most commonly presents as a painless, hard lesion on the testicle itself. Uh, now, on the so, exterior? Well, just when you feel the testicle through the scrotum, you can feel a hard mass. Okay. Is it round? Is it like a ball or is it uh, uneven? It's usually uneven feeling. Um, certainly testicular cancer can present with pain at times, um, but, that, but that's not the most common thing. Um, frequently, you know, men will have testicular, testicular pain and that concerns them, of course, and they get an ultrasound. And so whenever there is a question, the best thing is, you know, talk to your primary care physician, getting a scrotal ultrasound. And when that occurs, we're able to identify anything that's concerning. Um, So I think it's always good. We're always happy to, you know, kind of check a patient out and say there's nothing wrong rather than wait too long. So you mentioned, is it regular, like a self-exam? Do you recommend what, like monthly self-exams for men? I think it's a lot like, you know, screening for breast cancer where um, there's, you know, self-exam, probably the best time to do it is in the shower um, and just uh, examine one's testicles as funny as that sounds to make sure there's no new hard lumps or bumps that weren't there before. So if a man makes it into your office with a concern about a lump or a bump, what is done to diagnose whether this is testicular cancer? The first test that's usually done other than a physical exam is getting a scrotal ultrasound. Um, If that shows a solid mass in the testicles, that's testicle cancer until proven otherwise. Um, there aren't a lot of solid tumors in the testicle that are not cancer. So for treatment, does treatment mean um, removing the testicle? Treatment is uh, it's very important for staging. So if there is a testis mass that's a, you know, a um, solid testis lesion in the testicle, that's removed. Um, prior to that, there probably will be a CT scan of the abdomen, pelvis, and chest to make sure it hasn't spread. Um, to the lymph nodes, as we talked about earlier, um, since the testicle starts in the retroperitoneum, that's where we see the lymph node enlargement when it spreads. Even when there is lymph node involvement and even lung involvement, um, for most testicle cancers, the survival prognosis is excellent for men. So you would have surgery, but then you might also have some follow-up treatment. So surgery is the first step uh, based on the pathology and uh, the tumor markers and that kind of thing. Uh, Then there's either radiation or chemotherapy or observation. Do we know if there's anything that raises a man's risk for developing testicular cancer? Well, as we were talking about earlier, certainly a family history of testicular cancer. Um, undescended testicles are uh, well documented to have a higher risk of testicular cancer. Um, occupational exposure, radiation, um, uh, HIV, for example, is a risk factor for testicular cancer. Hmm. Um, so there, there are many that are, that are out there. Well, I want to ask you about trauma to the groin area that causes um, maybe pain and and swelling. Is that something that can be treated or should be treated? Absolutely. Again, so the most important thing when there is, you know, a traumatic car accident, a traumatic bike injury, a traumatic sports event, 
um, in a young young man. You want to go straight again to a children's hospital, children's ER, where we have trauma specialists, where we have devices and ultrasounds that can diagnose that very quickly and take appropriate action necessary or observation if necessary. So how do you know, like if, if a boy gets kicked in the groin, mm-hmm. how do you know as a parent whether that's something that needs to be seen by a doctor or if, you know, ice and rest is is warranted? It's, it's difficult. Um, I think it's, it's always better to err on the side of caution and go to the emergency room. Um, an early diagnosis is much better than a late diagnosis. So it's easy to go to the emergency room with a, a swollen, bruised scrotum. Ultrasound shows that everything's okay. The testicles are intact. There's no blood. Um, and just, you know, elevation and, and support. Um, it's much easier to reassure a par- parent when nothing's wrong than to kind of um, have to play backup quarterback um, when something's wrong and was missed. So in the event of trauma, could, could trauma cause like the torsion emergency? It's possible. That we talked about? Absolutely. What are, what are some other things that could happen um, in a traumatic injury? Um, you know, a lot of times we see kids are, are playing sports, either football or basketball or lacrosse or baseball, where if they weren't wearing athletic um, protection device, they can get struck in the testicles and that can cause testicular rupture, um, oh. which, which is serious and needs to be fixed right away. Okay. Well, I'm assuming that there's other non-traumatic reasons that uh, the, my, a man might have uh, swelling or pain in the testicles, um, things like infections. Absolutely. Things like that. What do you do for that? So when someone comes in with like, you know, a hard, you know, swollen scrotum that's red, you know, if we eliminate that there's no torsion or trauma, then we say, well, is there an infection? You know, there could be something called orchitis, which is inflammation of the testicle. There, there's something called epididymitis, which is inflammation of the epididymis. That can be caused by um, bacterial causes, viral causes, um, idiopathic causes where we're not really sure. But it's really important to evaluate that as well. Can you tell me about the pediatric urology specialty? Like, what was your training? So after, you know, one does a five to six year residency in urology, then you do a separate two to three year pediatric urology fellowship. Okay. Which involves one year of clinical practice and then one year of a research-based focus. And then, so here at Upstate, you uh, have a partner that's also a pediatric urologist? Yes, Dr. Matthew Mason. And then between the two of you, what kind of an area do you serve? We serve pretty much uh, all of central New York. We get a lot of folks from the North Country up towards Watertown, Ogdensburg, um, and the Adirondacks, all the way towards east, towards Albany, and then um, out west towards Rochester. And so your patients would be newborn up to, what, 18 or 21? What's the Usually we're, we're going for uh, newborn to age 18. Okay. And the majority of your patients um, need surgery or a specialist, right? They don't come just for like a regular checkup or primary right. care. So, you know, usually we'll see patients when there's concern about any kind of penile abnormality, any kind of circumcision issue. We'll see patients that have what's called hydronephrosis or dilation of the kidneys. So a lot of times we'll see expectant mothers um, that have some kind of abnormality of the fetus. And we see the mothers, and then we see the child once it's born. So you need to see the mother ahead of time just to prepare her for what to expect? Exactly. Okay. So we look at we look at the films, we look at the, the prenatal ultrasounds, which is also part of our training. And then we order tests when the baby's born. Just to wrap up, because we've talked about a lot of things, what are the most common things that you see in your practice? 
we see a good deal of undescended testicles. We see a lot of penile abnormalities, whether it's a circumcision that there's too much skin left over or um, where there's phimosis or the foreskin can't be retracted after a certain age. We see a great deal of um, hypospadias. Um, what is that? Which is where the uh, male meatus, the, the, the urine hole, essentially is on the bottom side of the penis to a varying degrees. Um, I would say that you know, when parents are concerned, um, it's always important to bring them to a children's hospital. Um, in Central New York, our children's hospital is Galasano uh, in Syracuse. And so when, how would a parent know that they should be concerned? Is it just sort of anything that seems unusual, or would they go to their primary care doctor first and then be referred? I think the most appropriate thing is when the child you know, is stable um, and they just have a question about a, an appearance of something, you want to go to your primary care. If the patient, if they're concerned about the patient, if there's fevers or they're not themselves or they're, you know, listless and that kind of thing, then you want to take them to the emergency room. But certainly just for a question about some, the way something looks, um, you don't want to use the emergency room for that. Thank you to Dr. Anthony Tracy. He's an assistant professor of urology and he specializes in pediatric urology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Are you addicted to your smartphone? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. How many hours a day do you spend on electronic devices? Do you walk down the sidewalk looking at your smartphone? Are you able to get through a meal without being online? Today on HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about smartphone addiction with John Ringheisen. He's a board-certified psychiatric nurse practitioner and an addiction and pain fellow at Upstate University Hospital. Welcome to HealthLink on Air. Thanks. Glad to be here. Now, addiction is a strong word. Can you define what an addiction is? It is kind of a strong word, and an addiction, the way that we're looking at it nowadays, is anything that you feel like is starting to impair your ability to function or get through the day. So a lot of the things that you were talking about, being able to walk, being able to drive, being able to get through a meal, being able to cope with things in a manner that's healthy, when those start to be impaired by either substance use or, in this case, a behavior that's when we start to question whether or not you're becoming addicted to a substance or a behavior. So a person, if the person wanted to tell whether they're addicted to something, they kind of need to ask themselves whether it's impairing their ability, right? Right, because the impairment and the effect on functionality, especially when you start getting into diagnostic criteria, is one of the things that we have to be very careful about in our clinical interviewing process. Because if there's no impairment, there's no diagnosis to be given to the patient at that point. So the things I described, like walking down a sidewalk, looking at your smartphone, or um, not being able to get through a meal without grabbing the the phone to to check something, are those problems? Are those like, I mean, impairing someone's? It really comes down to where's the impairment. So there's not an impairment personally with those individuals. You're able to walk down the street staring at your phone constantly. You're able to get through a meal and and do two things at once or you think you are but 
how related are you to the people around you? Is it impacting how you interact with your family? Is it redefining your relationships in your family or with your loved ones? And that's where we see a lot of the impairments starting to happen, where those emotional concerns or a lot of those alarm bells that go off with depression and anxiety that start to crop up because you're constantly spending your time in this behavior versus interacting face-to-face with people, that's where the impairment comes from. So are people addicted to the smartphone device or the electronic, or are they addicted to the social media connectedness that that device uh, provides? A lot of times when we're looking at addiction, we're looking at somebody that's trying to dissociate or trying to avoid some kind of an emotion. And so the thought and the idea behind addiction is starting to evolve where we're looking at more what is the impairment and what is the emotion that you're trying to avoid by engaging in this behavior. And devices are very easy to get addicted to because we can manipulate them in whatever way that we want. If I'm anxious, I swipe left. I'm not anxious anymore. I'm feeling really sad about something. I don't like the news. I can... X out of it, bring up a game, and I can avoid and not have to deal with the emotional responses that are being triggered by my day-to-day real life. So uh, thinking about smartphones, they're more than just um, games or social connected. I mean, there are clocks, there are banking, there are calendar, they're they're more than just a phone too, right? Yeah, and that's one of the things where, you know, those are functional things that we do on our phones nowadays. If you're doing a lot of stuff on your phone and you're spending a lot of time on your phone doing those things, we don't look at that as an addiction because that's functionality that you're performing through your phone. The phone is the tool that you've adapted to and allowed your banking and everything else to process through now. It's when we start getting into this idea of, okay, am I missing out? Fear of missing out on something with social media is a big one. We call it FOMO now. We even have a term for it that's in our language now. We're adapting in ways that are changing our behavior because we can't handle the emotional strain that it's causing. So FOMO, uh, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Who is most affected by FOMO? The people that we're finding in the literature that are most affected by FOMO are adolescents because their entire lives, their entire identities, sometimes their entire personality is so wrapped up into that perception of who am I online, what do people see, and what do I present to the public? And that's generally through social media that's on the device. So their personality starts to get projected into this kind of false reality, this idealized lie that we put out there to people of this is who I am, I'm happy all the time, I'm doing all these wonderful things, and it just isn't true. So are older people just sort of less affected by that because they've lived long enough to know that that's not true? <laughs> some of it is that, but we do see it starting to crop up in some of the elderly population as well, where it's this idea that, okay, I am missing out. I don't know how to use technology. I'm not as fluent in this language that everybody's speaking as far as text, emojis, and everything else. And so they feel left behind. And so we're seeing this kind of reverse FOMO where the fear of missing out isn't so much in the actual device and the actual engagement with the social media. It's, I don't know how to use it. Because it can be overwhelming. There's new stuff all the time. So how do you go about advising people um, to reduce their fears about missing out? How do you counsel someone that is really having trouble with this? Really, it comes down to... um, kind of an analogy that I use a lot when I'm doing a lot of my clinical interviewing with people trying to figure out what's going on. 
first we kind of look at the behavior and the analogy I use is you're in the house and it's on fire and the smoke alarm is going off. That's your anxiety, that's your depression, that's your emotions trying to get through to you to say, wake up, something's wrong. You've got one of two choices in what you can do. You can get up and take the smoke, the battery out of the smoke alarm and go back to sleep and burn down in the house, or you can get up and put out the fire. So where I approach people with fear of missing out and a lot of these behaviors that they engage in, is, and especially with substance use, is we get to what's the emotion and why are you trying to avoid it? Why are you so intolerant and why can you not tolerate face-to-face interaction? Why can you not tolerate dealing with these emotional cues that your body is throwing at you during the day? Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with John Ringheisen, a board-certified psychiatric nurse practitioner at Upstate, and we're talking about smartphone addiction. Um, so smartphones, tablets, these are ubiquitous. They're a huge part of modern American life. Right. So, but you're not saying that their existence is bad. I mean, they're there and they have functional purpose. Correct. Um, is everyone who has a smartphone prone to addiction to the smartphone? The possibility is there because it's one of those addictions where because it's a behavior and you engage in it, there's a lot of rationalization that gets involved and wrapped up in it. I'm doing this because I have to do this. I need to be engaged with my patients. I need to be engaged with what's going on at work so I can be more effective and more productive and get that promotion. And so there's a lot of defense mechanisms that start to crop up or you minimize. I'm not really on it that much. I don't, I only do it when I'm working. I only do these things, you know, the banking and everything else. I'm only on my phone during those moments, or I'm only on it during certain times of the day. So I need to be able to be, reach my kids, or my kids need to be able to reach me. And exactly. That's a really pervasive one that people fall into a lot. And so that's where you have to really evaluate what's the drive behind why I'm picking up the phone and why I'm swiping through all these things. Is it really something that I need to be engaged in, or is it really my anxiety, my inability to cope with these emotions that's driving the reason why I'm constantly engaging with the device rather than a person. Are there ways to prevent becoming addicted to your devices? That's a question that I get a lot is, is there anything preventative that we can do when it comes to substance use? It really comes down to the fight a lot of times is not about the phone. Take a look at the relationships that you're in. What is it about those relationships that's not as good as it should be? Or what is it about your emotional response to how you feel and how you react to those relationships that you're finding intolerant that you just want to avoid or bury in your smartphone or by isolating? So it's not so much a matter of things that you do that you can stack up and try to avoid yourself from, because I mean, there's apps out there that force you to swipe up left ground and do the hokey pokey before you get into your phone, but... People do the hokey pokey all day long and they constantly get into the phone. So it really comes down to, again, getting to that drive. What is it that's causing you to get into the phone so much? So taking a real clear look at your relationships and how you interact with people and why having a face-to-face interaction with somebody is a hard thing to do is what's going to pull you away from wanting to have a device that you can manipulate and mold into your ideal view of the world constantly in your face. There's got to be people who manage to handle uh, their smartphones in a healthy way. So Mm -hmm. what can we learn from those people? What are they doing right that we could, you know, mimic? 
some of the things are, you know, just bringing into the unconscious, you know, these kind of behaviors that we automatically do during the day, the rationalization, the minimization, the defense mechanisms that we don't even think about. So some of those apps that you can put on your phone that say, do you want in? Do you really want in? Is what you're in wanting to get into the phone for really that important? Some of those things are good because it just heightens that awareness of the behavior. Other things that you can do are the timers and a lot of the other things that track your behavior on the phone. How much time are you spending on games? How much time are you really in that banking application? Again, increases that awareness of what am I really doing on my phone? What kind of time am I really spending on my phone when I'm unlocking it each time? So when people seek treatment for substance use or or, uh, gambling disorders, aren't they also checked for underlying medical conditions? Because I'm wondering... Is that the case for people who, you know, say, I've got a problem, I've, I'm addicted to my phone? Do they need to be looked at to see whether they've got an underlying medical thing going on? Not as much with behavioral. With substance use, sometimes it's more prevalent because the substance is replacing something that is absent or not working well or just kind of medically off in the individual. With a behavioral addiction like gambling or an impulse disorder of some kind, we really look at an underlying mental health diagnosis. Is this person driving manic because they're bipolar? Are they delusional because they're in some kind of psychosis that's either been substance induced or that is because they're sleep deprived? Is it something that has an ADHD flavor to it where the phone is the fidget or the distraction or the constant lack of focus that's pulling them away from what they really need to be doing. So it's not as much from a medical sense as much as it is from a mental health stance that we do rule out some of the underlying conditions. How do you suggest parents help their kids um, establish healthy relationships with electronics? Wow, that's a really great question. And those healthy relationships with the electronics start with having healthy relationships with people. Understanding that relationships with people are what are real in the world. And that's not what's been edited and presented online through social media or even through gaming platforms or any of the other devices that you mentioned before that are constantly out there, constantly in our faces. So helping younger kids and especially adolescents when they start getting more independent, realizing what a healthy relationship is and building that self-confidence and that self-esteem so that they feel comfortable putting a genuine, accurate representation of themselves out in the world to be judged by other people. That is where having a healthy relationship with a person becomes very important and becomes a higher priority in their lives and the devices fall away and they don't become as reliant upon them. And they don't end up having fear of missing out. Exactly, because they know that the device is not the reality, the device is not truth. They know that that's a misrepresentation of reality and that reality is what they experience firsthand when they have actual relationships with people. So it's a lot more than just trying to regulate screen time. Correct. Okay. Well, let me ask you, how do you advise people who want to get back to a life from before smartphones were everywhere? <laughs> Is, can you do that? Can you just disconnect from your phone, put it away? Can you, can you, is that realistic? It all has to do with your ability to tolerate not having that constantly in your face. Um, 
this is kind of like a little bit of what we do with what we call exposure therapy. And sometimes if you flood somebody with the ex- stimulus or whatever it is that provokes the anxiety, it, it's too much. It's too anxiety provoking and that becomes a problem. But yes, the idea of taking device vacations or having your Wi-Fi or whatever you're using to connect to the internet that is allowing these devices to engage with the rest of the world set on timers so that they shut off when you're having a meal with your family and it it kind of forces or prompts that face-to-face engagement. Those are all great ways that you can, again, increase that awareness, increase that exposure to the emotions that you're finding intolerable and start learning those skills that are necessary to deal with somebody face-to-face. Well, thank you to nurse practitioner John Ringheisen. He's a board-certified psychiatric nurse practitioner at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about frontotemporal dementia. University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Alzheimer's disease is perhaps the best known type of dementia, but there are other types of dementias, and today we will speak about one that's known as FTD. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Hannah Phillips. She's a neuroscience PhD candidate working under the supervision of Dr. Wei Dong Yao in the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Hannah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So FTD, I know that stands for frontotemporal lobe dementia. What mm-hmm. can you tell me about this condition? Okay, yeah. Uh, so frontotemporal dementia, also what we call or refer to as FTD, uh, is the most common presenile form of dementia. So this means that it affects a younger population. Um, and it accounts for 10 to 20% of all dementia cases. This means it's the second most common form of dementia after Alzheimer's disease. And one of the more prominent features that really sets it apart from Alzheimer's disease is that it strikes younger. So it can strike anywhere between the ages of 21 and 80, but the majority of the individuals are between the ages of 45 and 65. So um, FTD has a substantially greater impact on work because, as you can imagine, these individuals at the age of 45 are typically still working. Um, and their families and a greater economic burden faced by the families compared to Alzheimer's disease. Um, And so the most reliable estimates suggest that about 50,000 to 60,000 people in the U.S. have FTD. However, FTD is often misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, um, or another psychiatric illness. So it takes up to three to four years to get a correct diagnosis in many expensive brain scans. Uh, And so many experts believe that this is perhaps an underestimate. Well, let's talk about what are the symptoms? If it strikes people younger, are Mm -hmm. you looking at symptoms of forgetfulness and that sort of thing? No. So actually, uh, what's interesting, compared to Alzheimer's disease, memory is relatively spared in individuals with FTD. Um, And so The disease was actually discovered by Arnold Pick, I just want to point that out, which was over a century ago. Um, He was the first to really 
document the neuropathologies and the symptoms of the disease. And uh, so there was a confusion around the disease for many, many years, um, as many people thought that it was Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or another psychiatric illness, as I mentioned. Um, and it really wasn't until the last decade that uh, we really recognized this disease cluster because of genetic discoveries that linked genetic mutations to the disease. And so now we started to recognize that FTD is really an umbrella term for this disease cluster um, that attacks the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain, and which is also referred to as frontotemporal lobar de degeneration. And each of these disorders can be uh, identified according to the atrophy, specific atrophy in the brain, as well as the symptoms that present first and are most prominent. So whether it be in behavior, we have which would be behavioral variant FTD, or in um, one's ability to speak or understand language, which is called primary progressive aphasia. Uh, but I'm going to mostly talk about the behavioral variant because that's the, the variant that we study in Dr. Yao's lab, and it's also the most common form of FTD uh, and is responsible for about 50% of all uh, dementia cases. You use the word atrophy. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? Um, so this, it basically means areas of the brain that are degenerating or so losing neurons. In FTD, it would be the frontal lobe and mm -hmm. the temporal lobe. What what happens, what, what part of that, the brain, what happens in the frontal lobe? What does that control? Yeah, so the frontal lobe, which is actually most um, affected by behavioral variant, when we start to see um, you know, degeneration and, and these neurons become affected, the symptoms that, um, that, that arise in the early stages are changes in personality or mood. Uh, the individuals become socially withdrawn, so they tend to have trouble communicating or relating to their friends and loved ones. Um, they'll show a lack of self-control. Uh, so this behavior, they may um, behave inappropriate in work or social settings, which could cost them their job. They uh, will show an increase in anxiety, also repetitive compulsive behaviors like clapping or tapping or smacking their lips. And as the disease progresses, you'll start to see um, more significant behaviors such as uh, compulsive overeating, as well as a lack of inhibition and empathy, and um, which it can often lead to dangerous and criminal behavior. And one study I read actually suggested that nearly 60% of um, all patients with FTD may commit a petty or minor crime. And um, the prognosis, though, is really of symptoms varies by individual. And uh, so it can be anywhere, the, the, the progress of the disease can be anywhere from two to 20 years, but we know that after symptoms arise, it's typically between, um, the, the average life expectancy is about seven to 13 years. Uh, but unfortunately, FTD does bring an inevitable decline to, to functioning. And um, unfortunately, there is no cure or treatment for the disease um, to, to, to prevent or slow down the progression of the disease. Why, why does it take so long to get a diagnosis? You said three or four years is typical. Yeah, um, so as I mentioned, unfortunately, it, the disease is often misdiagnosed in the early stages um, as you know Parkinson's disease or, uh, or some sort of psychiatric illness based on the, the symptoms that are presenting. And so it really wasn't until the past decade, as I mentioned, that you know these genetic discoveries uh, linked mutations to the gene and that 
uh, allowed us to really recognize that this is a disease uh, with a specific subset of symptoms and this um, and therefore this you know heightened awareness and now we're starting to get diagnoses faster and more correctly. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Hannah Phillips. She's a neuroscience PhD candidate working under the supervision of Dr. Wei Dong Yao in the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department at Upstate. And we're talking about frontal temporal lobe dementia. I wanted to ask you about the connection between FTD and ALS, um, or Lou Gehrig's disease. You've found a connection mm-hmm. between those diseases? Yeah, um, so as I've mentioned, uh, the disease often presents motor symptoms. And so well, ALS, just to introduce, is, is another uh, neurodegenerative disease that attacks the upper and, and lower motor neurons and hijacks the brain's ability to initiate and control muscle movement. And so, um, you know, over a century now, dating back to like Arnold Pick, when he first started uh, documenting patients, he noticed that patients presenting dementia-like symptoms often present motor symptoms. And so, um, but it wasn't really until the last decade that uh, an important genetic discovery found that there is actually a genetic link between the two diseases. And um, so they revealed that this mutation in a gene called the C9-ORF72 gene uh, and that specific mutation um, is a G4C2 hexanucleotide repeat expansion. Uh, but this, this mutation can cause both FTD, ALS, and FTD with ALS. Uh, and so it wasn't until you know, this discovery, th- which really transformed this long-held um, belief that ALS is purely a movement disorder, and FTD is purely a cognitive or behavioral form of dementia. And so, in fact, now we know that nearly half of all patients who are diagnosed with ALS will present some um, behavioral or cognitive decline that is similar to FTD, and vice versa. Patients diagnosed, about 30% of patients diagnosed with FTD will present uh, motor symptoms uh, consistent with ALS. And so, so we can, you know, we can say that FTD and ALS are um, over share common overlap clinically, uh, genetically, and pathologically. And uh, we've since found that the C9 ORF72 mutation is actually the most common uh, hereditary or familial cause of FTD, ALS, and FTD with ALS. Yeah. Well, tell me how you got started studying frontal temporal lobe dementia. Yeah. Um, so. Um, basically, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back just a little bit and talk about um, you know what is unknown about FTD, which is what kind of clued us into where we you know where our research went. Um, so the disease causing mechanisms uh, for at all levels, from cellular to synaptic to neural circuits, uh, are largely unknown, and there is no cure for the disease. So. And it were, this is mostly because uh, we didn't really have a strong grasp on the genetics of the disease until the, really the last decade. And so now we know that nearly 40% of individuals with FTD have a family history. So that would include at least one family member that's been diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease. And so we call this familial or hereditary disease. And we've also found, researchers have revealed that there are three genes that uh, account for the majority of these familial FTD cases, uh, and that is the C9 or 72 gene, 
a progranulin gene and another gene uh, called the microtubule-associated tau protein. And as I mentioned, the C9ORF72 gene is the most common uh, familial cause or hereditary cause of FTD and ALS. So um, each of these disease-associated genes have been a huge interest in the past decade to try to understand what causes FTD. And in our lab, we're focused on the most common of the three, which is the C9ORF72 gene. And so, um, you know, following the genetic discoveries, this allowed researchers to develop models to study the disease, uh, namely mouse models uh, that have been essential to trying to understand the disease-causing mechanisms. And we have adopted a particularly unique mouse model from our collaborators that harbor these C9ORF72-associated mutations and they not only recapitulate the neuropathologies of the disease and show neuronal loss or neuronal degeneration, but what makes them unique from other mouse models that have been created is that they actually mimic the clinical symptoms of C9-FTD-ALS. So they've been really exciting to work with. Um, and our collaborators have shown that at six months old, they show an increase in activity, anxiety, uh, a decrease in sociability, and as well as uh, significant impairments in motor coordination. So you're exploring, we still really don't know what causes. Exactly. So yeah. Really... So that's where it starts is trying to understand these disease causing mechanisms. And so, um, you know, first comes, you know, the genetics and then these models that are very useful to try to understand the, the mechanisms. And so, as I mentioned, we're using a very interesting, unique model. Um, and now to go into a little bit of what I've found uh, using this model, I found that uh, as the animals age, so at about 10 to 14 months old, which is equivalent to um, 45 to 50 years old in, in a human, the mice develop severe behavioral deficits similar to mid to late stage disease. Uh, and so this includes uh, compulsive overeating, increased risk-taking behaviors. Uh, they show severe behavioral de or social deficits. Uh, and a loss of empathy-like behavior. And so what we wanted to do next was really try to understand the neurophysiological basis underlying the loss of these behaviors associated with the disease, or in other words, how the disease affects neurons or brain circuits that are essential for driving the behaviors like sociability or empathy that are lost in the disease or in patients with FTD. And so um, we are uh, honing in on a specific subset of neurons in what's called the prefrontal cortex, which is a part of the frontal lobe that's affected. Um, and these, um, we, we know from previous literature and studies that this area of the brain is important for behaviors like sociability and empathy that are lost in patients with FTD. And so um, we also know from neuroimaging studies that this there's a specific atrophy in this region of the brain. And um, so what we do is we use a technique called electrophysiology. And this allows us to take an electrode or a very, very, very fine probe, and we poke it into individual diseased neurons, and we can listen, so to speak, to their electrical activity. And normally, um, in an intact functioning brain, this subset of neurons in the prefrontal cortex will fire some electrical activity when the animal is engaging in a behavior like social interaction. And so we call this firing action potentials or spikes. And um, each cell generates its own spiking activity and this message 
to engage in a social interaction is encoded in these spikes of this network of neurons. And so what was most exciting that we found in these diseased neurons is that they, um, there's actually a striking reduction in the number of spikes that they fire. And so this led us to hypothesize that this profound hypo excitability um, actually weakens the top-down control or um, contributes to the overall loss of control of FTD-associated behaviors like you know, loss of social interaction, loss of empathy that we see in these patients. So what we wanted to do next was to try to manipulate the excitability and try to rescue these loss of behaviors in this model. And we, we employed a technique called chemogenetics, uh, which is where we use a chemically engineered receptor that's exclusively activated by a pharmacological agent known as clozapine anoxide, or CNO. And we deliver this um, systemically or via microinfusion pump directly to the brain. And basically what it does is it allows us to increase or decrease electrical activity uh, in the, a target or targeted neurons, in this case the prefrontal cortex, and manipulate behaviors or in our case, we wanted to rescue or restore behaviors. And so this was really exciting because uh, what we found is that by increasing the electrical activity in this region of the brain that we found was hypoactive, we were actually able to rescue social um, interaction in these mice at, at a late stage of disease. And so this is significant because as I mentioned, there's no cure for the disease. And um, so this is a, these results are important because they shed light on a potentially novel therapeutic um, approach or intervention to prevent or slow down the progression of the disease. Well, this is encouraging work. I wanna, yeah. I want to thank uh, Hannah Phillips, a doctoral student at Upstate. Of course. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Sometimes people think poets must be such serious souls, working endlessly to craft the perfect line, no time for fun. But Syracuse poet Joan Cofrancesco, who has recently retired, shows us the exuberance and the delight that can come from following the poetic muse. Here is the poem that I will be remembered for. My best poem will have ocean right in the middle of it. Ocean so cold and deep with life, my friend will leave behind his scuba outfit and tell me, wear this when you go in. My best poem will have night in it too, and all the stars in the eastern sky, and this immense body of water shining for miles under a new moon. My best poem will have a jacuzzi and a shower for itself skylights, a phone by the faucet, a soap dish made from a clamshell picked from the beach an hour before breakfast. There will be waves breaking in my best poem and a beach where ocean-soaked shellfish will rise up consuming one another. Oh, my best poem will throw tides, but there won't be any water glasses in my best poem. I'll take up drinking from the bottle.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a devastating story that emphasizes the importance of medication safety. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.